Osiris. And I am Brian Brinkman. You are tuned in to episode 116 of the Beyond the Pond podcast. This is the podcast in which, generally speaking, Brian and myself utilize the music of Fish as a means of getting a listener to listen to other bands. Sometimes, but usually, these are not jam bands. Because we love Fish, we are Fish fans and continue to be Fish fans. Sometimes the problem with Fish fans, as you all know, is they get a bit myopic. Only focus on their favorite band, can name set lists back to front and talk about this and that. And Trey, Mike, Page, and John, like they friggin' live in the same part with them, even though they don't. But we're here to do something about that because we want to expose you to as much other music as possible. We absolutely are. And in this episode, our first episode of 2023, our second episode in rhythm, back at it, texting about Beyond the Pond, coming up with jam ideas to discuss, coming up with themes, talking about albums. In this episode, we are going to take a look back at Fish's recent 2022 New Year's Eve run talk about a few themes that we thought came out of that. We're also going to talk about the 1998 New Year's run because we see a lot of similarities between the two of those. And we are going to talk about some styles of music that we absolutely love. And I just want to say, before we jump into the episode, this is, as we noted in our last episode, our top albums of 2022, this is the start of BTP 2.0. It's going to be a little bit less regular. It's going to be a little more casual shaggier, if you will, a little bit more conversational than BTP 1.0 was. We're trying something, some new stuff out here. We want to get your feedback. So if you're listening to this, if you've been listening to us, no matter if it was you discovered us during the pandemic or you've been listening to us since 2017 when we started this podcast, let us know what you think about the episode. Let us know what you think about what we're doing. We're going to be kind of evolving and changing things up here over the next couple of months as we get back in the swing of things. BTP 2.0, so you can expect the equivalent of 30-minute Harry Hoods and Friday Encores, in other words. <laughs> the highs of the highs and the lows of the lows, but we will be here for all of it because you, you take that guitar, take the compressor off of it, and you just, anything goes. Peaks and valleys and very loud, loud Fishman China Boy gong sounds. BTP 2.0. But, so, uh, as we were saying, some of the themes we're going to explore in this episode, like Brian was saying, was uh, kind of an exploration of 1998 and 2022 New Year's runs, years of transition, and the effects of effects. One of our favorite topics at Beyond the Pond, shoegazing. On that note, let's get to the fish.
All right, so as we noted in the top, we wanted to explore the recent Fish New Year's Eve run. Um, if you listen to our last episode, you'll note that both of us were, I don't know if I would say lukewarm about Fish 2022, but we definitely had more criticisms for it than we had for Fish 2021. For me, it reminded me in a lot of cases of 2019, 2016, 2014, in the sense that it felt like a transitional year. And you never totally know what you're going to get out of the band when they go into a New Year's run following that year. Sometimes it's really, really good. 2019, parts of 2016 were really, really good. Sometimes, like 1996, it results in slightly tepid New Year's, a 2011, if you will, where the band kind of ends a year that had highs, lows, but not super high highs, not super low lows, just a lot of kind of like stuff in the middle. Calling 1996 and 2011 somewhat tepid is being kind. It's very kind. It's extremely kind. I'm trying to be very kind here. But, you know, you hear the band sometimes uh, closing out a year that's middle of the road with a New Year's run that kind of reflects that. So I didn't know exactly what to expect going into this New Year's run. As we're going to get into it, I really enjoyed large parts of this New Year's run, particularly the middle two shows. Um, Dave, you were at the first three nights of the New Year's Eve run. What were your overall thoughts on it and kind of what were your big takeaways from this run? I thought it was a fantastic run where each of the three shows built upon the one that that really came before. It was, uh, they came to play. I guess for an example... After 1228, I turned to my friend and said, that was good. I enjoyed that. That was a fun night. After 1229, I turned to him and said, damn, son. This band came to play. After 1230, I said, that was fucking awesome. (laughs) So, and then the New Year's show was kind of very good for what they were trying to accomplish. I mean, as we'll talk about, the New Year's show was really about one of their greatest gags, the playing was fine, but always New Year's is always kind of more of like the fun, let's have a gag, let's have a good time type show. But yeah, I thought the three shows were excellent and um, very much a showcase, as we're going to talk about, for Trey's bag of Fish 4.0 effects. Lots of his Jedi sound, lots of the opening space-time continuum, black holes to the other world sound. Lots of evilness. Lots of what Brian and myself text back and forth we call Evil Zeropa, which we'll uh, kind of talk about <laughs> later in the episode as a reference to uh, the Edge's guitar sound on the title track of U2's Zeropa album. But, yeah, I mean, I thought, excellent showcase for Trey's effects rig, and the 30th was the best of the run, and argue with the show of the year as it usually is because there's few guarantees in life other than death and taxes and fish on December 30th. (laughs) It's a beautiful thing. It's one of my favorite, it's my favorite fish day to the year. And it seems to just deliver and deliver and deliver year after year. You you think one of these years they're going to forget or they're not going to feel it that night but it's just like every single year december 30th just hits like a ton of bricks um i watched the entire run from my couch and i had a pretty similar reaction to you and throughout the entire weekend we were really on the same page with our takeaways um which was really cool 
I feel like you and I are never too far off in terms of how we feel about uh, certain fish shows, certain fish jams, but it's good when you're kind of in this, like, it's one thing when they're playing the way that they were in, in 2021 and the whole tour, you're just like, this is fucking awesome. And that's awesome. And that's awesome. There's, you, you, you run out of ways to say that a show or a jam was really good. A year like this, I always find kind of challenges me and tests me as a listener because oftentimes the band will make choices or they'll cut off jams or they'll play songs in places where you don't necessarily expect or want them to be played. And as a listener, it's not as kind of directly pleasurable in the way that 2021 was or a 2017, um, 2015. But it often makes me think about the band in different ways. And 2022 did that throughout the entire year. And I loved how the year was capped off by specifically the 29th and 30th, where you have this super fun celebratory kind of what the hell is happening right now show on December 29th that opens with Fluffhead, um, your pet cat, and then this bathtub gin that goes into a really, really unique jam. And then you get the other side of fish, the non-party band side, the kind of cerebral side that makes the very heady side of fish on December 30th, where you get this theme from the bottom shock jam and set one that moves into this just like smearing wall of sound type of space, as well as a second set that while has four standout jams in it in no men, um, golden age, golden age sand. And, uh, uh, I always wanted it this way page EDM plus the beautiful <laughs> ballad of if I could, but really that set is like one complete piece. It doesn't feel like four individual jams plus a ballad. It feels like one set piece, you know, that yin and yang of fish between the party on the 29th and the 30th. That is this like heady experience. That balance is just one of my favorite things about them. When they hit it and they hit it this year, it's so much fun as a listener, you know? Yeah. The 28th was, uh, your classic fish warm-up show. It was a good show. It was a very yeah. solid fish pour pointo show. Like you, they could have, you know, but it could have been a show on like a Wednesday night in like Cincinnati or whatever, and you would have had like a fun time at it. That had excellent Sigma Oasis. You get the wall of sound, almost like a chest fever jam with like big torrents of organ finishing that up. Um, obviously, second set, the wave of hope, which is almost. One of those MVP songs for 2022. Almost every time that song started up, you're in for something near 20 minutes. I think it is the song of 2022. Yeah, it really is. That might have had, between goodness, obviously the Hartford version, Meriwether Post, this one, oh, that there's one other. Deer Creek. Yes, Deer Creek. Uh, and AC had a really, really great one. AC was, uh, um, it went wave of hope and then a really good you enjoy myself in that second set of the third night ah that's right so yeah that's very much an mvp song which really came to play and that second set also had a simple where you get a big taste of the tray guitar effect fest to come and that the simple got the very jedi pedal bloop bleep alien transmission like treatment halfway through so yeah, that was a very fun show. But then on the 29th, the difference is palpable. And that they come out with a fluff head, which is 
Zero flubs. Very, I mean, no one's really talking about how in- incredibly tight that fluff head was. And then when they decide the jam that keeps going, you say, okay. And then your pet cat. And they figured out that transition into the jam yeah. out of fluff head in a way that I, I don't want to complain, but like it really makes you wonder how they can't figure out the jam, the transition into a David Bowie jam because mm. Fluffhead is like it's getting so fast and it's moving towards the conclusion and somehow like Trey has figured out I just play like a minor chord and I just start playing a groove and Fishman's going to go to the ride and Mike's going to start to you know he, he's going to transition with me and Paige is going to go to the synths and they just move out of Fluffhead so easily now it's so wild. I know. And then with the bathtub gin, it got dissonant pretty quickly. Like when you go Fluffhead, your pet cat, and then bathtub gin is the third song of the evening. You think, all right, they're going to do something fun with it. They're here, they're playing a purpose. And that got very dissonant with Dave's energy guide teases with some darkness with the black hole effects. And then as we were saying with that second set, the everything's right. Probably the darkness couldn't have even gone for another two minutes. Would have loved it. And then a version of, of Ruby Waves, which is almost has as high a batting average as, um, as Wave of Hope in terms of interesting jamming. And I got to say, as much Ruby as... Ruby Waves bats 550. As you say, it's the Tony Gwynn song right now. It is the Tony Gwynn song. You can't strike him out no matter how hard you try. He comes up to the plate. It doesn't matter where they play it. No. doesn't matter where they play it. It's just like where it appears, it's perfect. I was at this show and I remember really, really, really enjoying it. And then when I listened to it on Live Fish, I thought, oh my God, this like version blew my face off with a missile. And I didn't realize it at the time. But holy shit, that's a... Ruby Waves, I mean, it's been a standout in 4.0. Obviously, there's the gigantic version from Oregon from 2021. Excellent version from Hershey, Night 2 in 2021. This could be this could be top three behind those two. At the very least, top five. And Dick's had a really great version last yes. year that goes under the radar. There was a really good version at Dick's this year. I think it was the longest jam of the overall weekend. Yeah, it's definitely a song that, like, I don't know, man, when, when those lyrics kick in and you, you think about Trey writing that song in 2007 at kind of the depths of what he was going through at that period and now singing it on stage, I, I get choked up every time I hear it. And the fact that it inspires along with a wave of hope, like these two new songs that the band has written, uh, newish songs, if you will, um, that they're directing the improvisational direction of this band. Um, I, I want to ask you a question because we, we yeah. talked a lot here about like the sonic elements of what we loved about this run. But I want to ask kind of a controversial question just to get the pod started early here. Shoot. Um, I'm not going to show my hand of where I, where I sit on, on where this question is, but I'm curious your answer. We're now coming into the third full year of Fish 4.0. And we had this revolutionary change in the band's sound in 2021 in a way I don't think anyone expected, where Trey was really heavily leaning into these synth pedals and the sound became a little bit more mechanical, industrialized. I think you and I would agree one of the peaks of that overall sonic experimentation was the Carini Encore from San Francisco Mm. 2021. I would say that the band 
was trying to figure out this year how to further incorporate those effects, but also how to potentially get away from them. And that that tension, especially between how Mike and Trey are playing together right now, defined a lot of the frustrations I had with this year. I'm curious your thoughts. Have we reached the end of the road of these Trey effects? Like, do we need a seismic shift in the band's sound to kind of keep their jamming moving forward? Or do you think that they could still have areas to mine with this sound? I don't think so necessarily. I mean, I love the sound. I love the effects. I love the instant darkness. I love that it seems like at times on Trey... On stage, he's opening up holes to other worlds. He's like, some of these sounds, it sounds like I want to say they enter the space-time continuum. Like he's tearing black holes apart on stage with these efforts with delay. With the delay, with the angry sounds. I mean, I'm trying to put it into some way more eloquent. So I don't think he has to change up the effects pedal so much as... I think kind of what I wouldn't mind seeing out of 2023 would be in addition to some new sounds. I think that if they could find a way just to extend jams three or four, even five minutes by virtue of some repetition, which is to say, take these sounds, hang on them, stay on them, and kind of milk them for all it's worth. I would love if 2023, obviously we know that Trey's a big fan of King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. And they incorporate a lot of kraut rock sounds, a lot of cosmiche into their sound, a lot of use of like the motoric beat on a song like their song um, "Interior People" off of the the Butterfly Three Thousand record, which I know Trey is quite fond of. They could somehow get like some sort of I don't know, like a kraut rock feel to some of the songs. I would love to see them just take something and write it out, give us a beat, just hang on it for like a little bit. I know that's not entirely what you asked, but I'm just trying to think of what I want to see out of the band in 2020. I don't think they have to abandon the scronky sounds right away just because I'm having so much fun with them. I'm more or less on the same page. I think the only thing I would add is um, <clears throat> I, I've kind of been surprised that we haven't heard as much experimentation from Mike to move away from the sounds that Trey has been playing mm. because when Trey goes to a riff on that synth pedal, it immediately sounds like a bass. And yeah. as Mike showed in the Mike gear breakdown, uh, that played, uh, I think it, that set break of 1230. I want to say there's a lot of atmospheric and spacious sounds that Mike has that I just don't hear that much unless a jam is transitioning out. Um, and I think to your point, that idea of extending the jam by like three or four more minutes and just seeing what's on the other side of something, Mike stepping to the fore in that area, like in that position and, and really pushing unique sounds forward and unique effects forward and really kind of mixing some of his effects. I think that that could push Trey's sonic experimentation into a different direction. Um, and then the other area is, I think he's... The best fist jams to me of 4.0 have featured Page on the synthesizer. Oh, yeah. And like really yeah. heavily on the synthesizer. Um, like Ruby Waves. Like I re-listened to, yeah, I re-listened to the Ruby Waves from Eugene, which was my favorite jam last year, 2021. <clears throat> and that like, that is so heavy on Mike leading 
melodically and page leading with synthesizers. The other example is the simple from Deer Creek that we've brought up a bunch of times. Trying to figure out avenues into that sound, I think would be my wish for where they take this. Cause I agree with you. I don't think Trey needs to abandon these effects. I think the band just, there's a, there's to me a better way for them to utilize what he's pushing forward and what he's so dominant with, um, in a way that at their best they've done over the last two years, but I feel like they got away from a bit in 2022. So I'll tell you, one of the bands that we're listening to a lot lately is, uh, we talked about it the brief on the last podcast, uh, this band called King Buffalo, the latest album being mm. Regenerator. So I like that so much, I went back and listened to their prior two records, which I think both came out in 2021 because they were trying to do like a pandemic trilogy. So there was a record they have called Acheron. It's only four songs in 40 minutes. And what I'm marveling about this band is that they're so patient and that they're willing to really milk a riff for like four or five minutes, knowing that there's going to be a huge payoff at some point if you stick with it. And just their ability to be patient and the amount of spacing they have between the instruments and just kind of trusting that they know what they're doing and that the song is a 10-minute runtime, but hang with it because you know that it's going to have a huge payoff. So I would like to see some... Is patience in the fist jam as opposed to Trey using every effect and going crazy and seeing that he has to fill every section with as many notes as possible, which isn't always the case. But sometimes less is more. Take a riff, sit in that shit for six or seven minutes, build it up, and then the payoff is even sweeter. I think that's a perfect way to put it. And I think... Um... It's also a natural transition to the other New Year's Eve run that we wanted to discuss yes. a little bit at the top here of this episode that as we were talking about 2022, we were finding a lot of similarities with, and that's 1998. And I think to your point that you're making there of that patience of taking a riff and just seeing where that riff goes, seeing what ideas a bandmate throws out, responding to those, but doing it very slowly and doing it in a way that emphasizes uh, effects and emphasizes really weird and unique sounds. That's all over 1998. Um, this is a run. I was not a fish fan yet when this run happened. I don't believe that you were at these shows. No, I was on a cruise ship. You, you were on a cruise, a supposedly fun thing. You'll never do again. I will never do it again. I was 19 years old on a cruise with my family. And even at, the young age of 19, I thought, I'm not a cruise guy. This isn't for me. I should be at the fish shows. Fuck this. I've long known that I'm not a cruise guy, and then I read David Foster Wallace's essay, A Supposedly Fun Thing I'll Never Do Again, which is a minute-by-minute breakdown of his experience on a cruise, and I realized after reading that, it's not for me. It's just not for me. It's for other people. It's not for me. Fish is for me. The cruise ship band played 1999, because we were going to go into 1999, 1998, and they did, they did it fine. I mean, Fish did that as well, but I would have rather see, I would have rather seen Fish do it. And this run, so this is a really interesting run to me, because on the one hand, almost nobody talks about it. Um, but on the other hand, all four of these shows are really good. 
I think that there are two fully complete and brilliant shows from this run. And the other two, the two I like the most are 1229 and 1231, which I don't think is really controversial. But 1228 and 1230 still feature really good jams. Um, what are some of the themes and some of the ideas that you got from listening to this run over the last week or so as we were kind of comparing and contrasting it to 2022? Well, I think much like 2022, there's a big element of darkness running throughout, especially with Trey's use of his effects in 1998. You kind of got a taste for this in Halloween with the gigantic, metallic, evil, ugly, sludgy Wolfman's brother, which comprised most of uh, the, the third set. And that really comes out again in the 1228 Carini and the Wolfman's Brother, where you get to about 12 minutes into that Carini, he's just like opening up giant evil pits of snakes on stage. That just gets <laughs> darker. You can see the pit opening up on stage as it sucks everything inside of it like a black hole. Um, but also a kind of how we compare this to 2022 is that the, Really, the music is the theme. I mean, obviously, 2022 had a huge gag. The gag in 1998 wasn't terribly notable. But um, 1998 was a transitional year, much like 2022 is. And you really get a feeling for what they did throughout that year when it comes to the uh, effects that are coming out on stage. I just think there's a lot of darkness in the 98 New Year's run. Yeah, it's really the period where it's it feels the biggest contrast to now is we know that once the clock turns 1999, the next nine years of fish are really, really challenging Mm. in a lot of different ways. Um, There's a lot of highs, obviously big Cypress. This summer 99 tour is one of my favorite tours ever. Uh, 2000 has the Japan run. I mean, there's really, really good moments. I'm a huge advocate for the music of 2003. Um, but obviously the band takes a hiatus. There's personal problems. They come back. 2.0 has a ton of issues. Coventry was really challenging. And the band spent five years apart before figuring things out and coming back. And I always have felt that that late fall 98, New Year's, Eve, New Year's run 98 is really, as you're, as you're saying, not only do you hear the music turning darker, but you kind of know that that music's accompanying where the people are going up on stage, right. which makes it hard to revisit at times. Whereas 2022, they've kind of found this point since Magnaball, since the Baker's Dozen, where they can just go completely off the grid and jam while you know that on stage they're in a really good place. And that's a very different – that there was, there was a long period in time where people thought that would never happen. Plus 1998 was um, – they're basically the MSG has been at this point. This was the first four-show New Year's run, correct, at the Garden? It's first four show New Year's New Year's run. It's wild because like they'll walk off stage after twelve thirty one ninety eight. They won't play MSG for another four years. The next MSG show is twelve thirty one right. two thousand two. The first show two point but they won't do a run at MSG for nine years. The next run is December two thousand nine, and ever since then we've got December oh nine, New Year's ten, New Year's eleven, twelve, thirteen, and then fifteen and onwards. Um, this is kind of the start of that where fish could say, we'll book four nights and four peak nights 
and we're going to sell this place out every single night. Just watch us. And they do it. And this becomes their home territory. It's a really cool, really cool run. Um, I think to your point as well, you, know, you talked about the Carini, the Wolfmans, the second set from the 30th just really stands out as kind of similar. I don't think it's as good as 12, 30, 22, um, but it's a strong second set. Uh, you got a huge down with Z's, a big Piper, a surprising gem out of the squirming coil, uh, really good Caspian. It's just a really, really complete full set that you want to listen to in one sitting. Yeah, that down with disease, in a reference that some of uh, our younger listeners might not understand, I say that's <laughs> Trey's um, dial-up modem effects. Like it sounds like he's trying to sign on. <laughs> it sounds like he's trying to sign on to AOL. Most of that down with disease. I get that. And it's funny because like we talk about the you know the effects of today. The thing that's wild is like Trey's effects rig at, in late 1998 is kind of a fraction of what he has now. It's such a pristine and refined uh rig that he has set up at this point in time. And he's got obviously that pedal board now that everything's behind him, so it's all just like calling to effects behind him. It's much more organized, um, but it also like, you know, between the amps that he's using and between the effects that he's incorporating into his sound, it's just like a very, very, uh, it feels like a, an advanced sound, whereas 1998, there's still like a rawness to what he's trying to do. He's still trying to figure out what exists in his amplifiers and in his Languidoc and what can he really get out of it. Yeah, it's kind of like, it almost takes the sounds that he'd explored and the uh, Hampton 1997 ACDC bag, which just has that mm, stretch yeah, yeah. of like five minutes where you feel like your face is being ripped off and thrown to like a different galaxy. It's almost like he's trying <laughs> to reprise that in the Down with Disease. And it just sounds like a dial-up modem for like six minutes. Like the rest of the band is, is pumping and it's just... <laughs> I think that same approach works slightly better but still really interesting. I think they're both really interesting, but slightly better on the simple the next night. Yes, yes, which yes, yes, yes. That third set of the New Year's Eve 98 show is kind of this rare New Year's Eve show that is one of the best shows of the overall run. Um, I say I think it's the best New Year's Eve show after 95, and that's with an asterisk that 1999 Big Cypress doesn't count. That's mm. its own thing. That's that's not a concert. That's not a New Year's Eve show. But 95 is, I think, the best New Year's Eve show. And then I would put 98. It's a complete listen. You've got this amazing Mike's Groove in set one, this ghost in set one, this tweezer that melts into cities, really cool gym to go into Odd Lang Syne and then goes into Simple. And then this Harry Hood with like an eight-minute intro that the band, like you talk about the patience you were describing a couple of minutes ago, like the band is just like letting the song evolve and they're in no rush to get to the main part of it. Yeah, on the audience recording, it's great because you can hear people go like, Harry, Harry, and then realize that Fish isn't actually playing that. Like, oh, okay. <laughs> and then somebody coughs. You said my audio tape, the taper was, was coughing. <laughs> Yeah, the we could really use a soundboard release of that '98 New Year's run. It's it's just it's begging for what you talk about with that disease. It's begging to be heard in soundboard quality. Yeah, that's uh, the '98 New Year's run could very 
Welby, a vinyl box set and or live fish archive release. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. I, I would love, I, I would love both of those. So we've been talking about the 2022 and 98 New Year's Eve runs for the last 30 minutes or so. And I think we both could keep talking about these because there's still a lot to, to discuss with these runs, but um, we're going to transition to talking about some other music that has reference points to what we've been talking about here in this breakdown, um, namely guitar effects, transition and shoegaze. But before we do that, we're going to play just some brief snippets of two of our favorite jams of these two new year's runs. So first up, we're going to play the Carini from 1228, small snippet of that. And then you'll hear a little bit of the Ruby waves from 1229. 22 when we get back talk about guitar effects artistic transitions and shoegaze
That was some zones that we were in in the Korean movie waves. Serious trailer zones. I loved it. Um, so we're going to do two segments here. And like we noted at the top, it's going to be slightly different than the way we used to do it, where we would identify a specific song by a band, give you a breakdown, a little history. We're just going to talk here a little bit. Um, our first segment is going to focus on years of transition plus the effects of effects. And our second segment is going to focus a bit on shoegaze and how it relates to the 98 and 2022 Fish New Year's Eve runs. But in our first segment here, there's no better artist to talk both years of transition as well as the effects of effects than one of our favorites, someone we haven't talked about in a while behind a mic, Mr. Neil Young, a man who essentially lived his entire, has lived his entire musical life in transition while also examining what happens when you turn this effect all the way up and play it for 15 minutes. What happens? Well, you get a lot of noise just bombarding into your ears and that's a really good thing. So Dave, I feel like Neil Young is like the, the, the through line for us on this podcast, Neil Young and fish in a lot of cases, you and I both love the dead. We both love obviously the war on drugs. Um, we both love Goose, both love a lot of different bands. There's different avenues that we go down, but there's also a lot of bands that bring us together. I don't know if anyone brings us together more than Neil Young, both in ways that we love to be confounded by him. We love to laugh at him. We love to laugh with him. We love to exist in his music. We love to listen to his bad music. I really love listening to his bad music. <laughs> And we love just trying to understand what was happening with him at various stages in his career. And we picked out three albums here, uh, 1982's Trans, 1987's Life, and 2009's Lenoir as really good touchstones in both Neil in Transition, um, as well as Neil really emphasizing effects. And to kind of kick this off, because we have a few other artists we want to talk about in this segment, I want to ask you a question. Mm. Why is risk, constant transition, and failure essential to loving Neil Young? Well, with Neil Young, I mean, obviously, everybody loves the early crazy horse. I mean, what's on to love about things like Cinnamon Girl and Cortez the Killer off of Zuma and Like a Hurricane and all that stuff is obviously completely essential to Neil Young. It's what you want to hear when you see him on stage. But the guy has got over probably like 40 studio albums at this point. And part of the enjoyment is seeing when he kind of falls in his face on purpose and doesn't care. And you get this very much in his 80s albums they put out on Geffen. Um, you get this somewhat on Lenoir, or if you want to be unelegant, call it Le Noise. <laughs> which came out in, uh, in 2009. But yeah, I mean, loving the guy, just understand that he doesn't care, and that when he puts out a record, 1982, like Trans, which uses a lot of vocoder, a lot of somewhat, I want to say, crappy early 80s production, he was being completely sincere. Like you said, the reason he wanted to use that vocoder 
was a way of trying to communicate with his young son who had cerebral palsy. So while most of the critics and the fans at the time were tempted to say, what the hell is this crap? Songwriting really holds up. And you go back and it's a fascinating record. And I think, you know, obviously, I think a record like Trans, like Revisionist History, has really pumped it up. Whereas people now can look back and appreciate it much more than they did in 1982 when it seemed like he was just being difficult as a way to get out of a record contract with Geffen that he'd like very much. Yeah, it's it's fascinating because I'm just looking at his discography right now and basically everything up until trans like follows a pretty notable trajectory. You know, it's you get this classic acoustic period in the early 1970s with After the Gold Rush and Harvest. You get Tonight's Night, On the Beach, Time Fades Away, Zuma, these big blowout rock records, both the Ditch Trilogy and then Zuma at the end with Crazy Horse. And then you get this kind of like middle ground, somewhat acoustic, some electric stuff, all kind of peaking with uh, Rust Never Sleeps and Live Rust in the late 1970s. And he's kind of just at this point going into the 80s as just like, he's probably just going to make another Neil Young record again. And partially in rebellion to David Geffen, partially out of all the experimental choices he was making, we get trans, everybody's rocking, old ways, landing on water, life, and this note's for you, which is Mm. a six-album stretch (laughs) that has no albums repeating the sonic elements of the album before, the closest parallel being landing on water and life. There's some really good stuff in there. There's some really bad stuff in there. Looking at you, this note's for you. There's his quietest record ever in old ways, which is Neil Young making a true country record. There's a 50s greaser record, but there's these two albums that kind of bookend it with trans and life that really showcase the evolution of production in the 1980s and him going from this really ambitious approach with trans that kind of falls on its face to this equally ambitious approach to make kind of the reverb drenched, reverb soaked late eighties, big arena rock records with life that kind of gets overlooked by a lot of listeners. Both of those kind of showcase the evolution of technology at that period in time, but also to my ears, and I think you, you as well, you hear him just like diving into what's in his head sonically, even if he doesn't fully get there. Yeah, I mean, a corollary is kind of almost 80s Dylan in the sense that in terms of the drum sounds, in terms of the production, you listen to it and you look back and you think, my God, this has not aged well. But the songs hold up. Like the songwriting's there. I know with trans, in addition to the vocoder, wasn't that accompanied by a large tour, which Neil Young, he wore like a skinny tie, there were sunglasses, he had like a headset microphone, so he was, he was leaning into it, and it was completely sincere. He wasn't doing it to take the piss, I think he was legitimately fascinated by processing his voice with his vocoder. And there's also songs that record that, um, the non-vocoder songs that he still plays to this day, like uh, well, the last song on the record, um, like an Inca, right? Yeah, yeah. That's been 
known to open a bunch of recent Neil shows with uh, Promise of the Real, his non-crazy horse backing band with Lucas Nelson. So, it's interesting is that at no point has he ever really like repudiated, hasn't repudiated any aspect of his work. Like he still plays songs from all his records, like Prisoners of Rock and Roll from Life. He was playing that with Crazy Horse, nineteen ninety six. Mister Soul was a huge track on uh, uh, Right Horse. Um, you said something that I think is really. It just gets to the heart of it, and and part of the reason why I can't stop listening to Neil Young, and I also probably can't stop listening to Fish, is the earnestness with which he's approaching this risk-taking. Right. Like, you think about Fish in 1992, and if... I don't know anyone who would have predicted that six years later they would have sounded like the band that they sounded like in 1998. Like, where Trey is leaning so heavily into washes of sounds and big chords and big effects. And Neil, I don't know of anyone in 19... 76 who was predicting that by 1982 he was going to be playing this very digitized music and that by 1987 it was going to be very reverb drenched these gated drums and these huge ballads and a song like mid-east vacation that you know feels like it could be the lead track on a 80s action film um like these are just it's him leaning into it not for imitation it's more emulation and and seeing what he can learn from an experience and usually more often than not those experimentations kind of like what you're talking about with dylan they end up leading to really brilliant places like these big swings and misses end up leading for dylan to oh mercy oh mercy and time out of mind uh rough and rowdy ways for neil these big swings in the 80s end up leading to Ragged Glory, end up leading to Harvest Moon, end up leading to um, Year of the Horse, you know, the big live album that came out in the 90s. It really leads to a classic period for Neil of a lot of success, a lot of eyes on him, but he wouldn't have gotten to those places again had he not gone down all these weird roads. And there was also an element of him listening to the radio and trying to stay current which happens like a lot of 70s rockers trying to navigate the 80s. Like you heard these big gated drum sounds and kind of got obsessed with that sound, which is why you listen to Landing on Water and all you can hear is like this gigantic <laughs> gated drum sound from Steve Jordan. You're thinking like, what? what is this? Why are the drums like Neil Young's a guitarist? All I'm hearing is this like gigantic drum sound trying to jump out of the speaker. But that's what he wanted. That's what he wanted, and he refines that on life. And yes. it's funny you talk about like the over. You talk about the over presence of drums in the mid nineteen eighties. You fast forward twenty four years, and he records a record completely devoid of drums, but leaning just as heavily into distortion and this big guitar sound. You know, he's the only instrument throughout the album Lenoir's Lenoir uh, that I was mistaken at the top. It came out in 2010, the fall of 2010. It was one of my favorite records that year. But <clears throat> that album leans into Daniel Lenoir's production style. Daniel Lenoir, obviously this huge producer from the 1980s and into the 1990s, worked with Brian Eno on a number of U2 records, makes his own music in his own right that's very ambient and atmospheric. Produced Bob Dylan's Time Out of Mind, um, 
as well as Omercy. Um, and really just when he works with an artist, you make a Lanois record and you make a record in the style of Daniel Lanois. And that record, Lanois, that comes out at a period in time for Neil where just looking at like what he released around that period, the 2000s you get Are You Passionate with Booker T and the MGs, Greendale with Crazy Horse, his um, rock opera, Prairie Wind, his kind of bookend to the trilogy of Harvest, Harvest Moon, Prairie Wind, recorded it obviously after his brain aneurysm, Living with War, his very aggressive anti-Bush record, Chrome Dreams and Fork in the Road, uh, two of my least favorite Neil Young records that are just about cars, and then you get Lenoise. And Lenoise leads into this period where you get Psychedelic Pill in 2011 with um, Crazy Horse. Uh, you get him recording a ton with Promise the Real, and you get these more recent records, the kind of trilogy of Colorado Barn and World Record, um, all three of which with Crazy Horse, and all three of which I would say the, of the latter has like the highest of highs. But you, you, you're seeing him at this point where he's figuring out, and it, I tip my cap to, cap to him, he's not sitting idly by on a sound that he defined for himself in the 70s. He's still fucking around and trying to figure out what works. Yeah, he's fumbling in the dark. He's trying to find it. Are you passionate in Prairie Wind? I don't think are very good Neil Young records. No. But with Lenoir, the noise, that's almost like Mila Shuge's record. Because yeah. it's just yeah, yeah. him within a gigantic wash of sound being very passionate. You put the first you put on the first song on the record, it kinda of like blows you back with the Max L guy. <laughs> yes. You're like, Whoa <laughs> What the hell is this? I love it because it's just it's just his it's that guitar. That's like yeah. the front and center of it all. It's all black, blown up to gargantuan proportions. That's really cool. It kind of gives you the sense of being in just like a studio with Neil, where his bandmates haven't shown up yet, and he's just trying to test out a new, uh, you know, an amp and make sure a new effect is working well. Um, I want to talk a little bit just about a couple other artists. Um, that kind of went through these transitional periods in varying degrees of success, but also really leaned into effects when they were going through periods of transitions. We both have been listening a lot this week to U2's Zuropa, which is a favorite record of ours. Um, we kept hearing, I think it was through the Ruby Waves. Is that the jam that we kept hearing like Trey Feet, like sounding like he was playing the intro to Zuropa, the, the, the title track? Uh, it was Ruby Waves, part of it. Um, also very much in that everything's right. Yes. Elements right. of the very metallic version of Sand. Well, God, we didn't even talk about that Sand. Where he just goes trench warfare on the effects. He's just like blowing, blowing things up on stage. I think the first time ever we referenced Zuropa... And talking about fish was the light from December 30th, 2016. Mm, mm, mm. Where. Very much so. The title track to that record, it kicks off with the edge, the very delayed, almost like David Gilmore, run like hell kind of style of guitar. It comes back again at the bridge of that song. 
and it's just a sound where he sounds like he's taking like his wah pedal and he's like ripping open keep coming back to this ripping open the space-time continuum it's like he's taking his hands <laughs> and he's putting his hands out and he's tearing it apart and that's a sound that we heard Shrey utilize quite a bit in this run only in more of an evil way so we say oh Trey's going to evil Zeropa. And that's a compliment because we love how that sounds. We love that sound. song I would kill to hear the band really practice and try to play. I don't know how much we could count on them nailing every part of it right now. Um, what fish are you two? Fish. Oh. I would just love to hear Trey, Trey try to hit that opening riff. I love it so much. I don't know how Trey feels about you two. I'm pretty sure that fish food is not like Bono at all. It always makes me sad that the best Iculus ever features them completely dissing you two. It was like one of the first <laughs> things I heard from Fish, and I was like, man, I was like, I'm going to have to get past this. Like, I love well, you guys already. I was at a point in my life where I wasn't super into you two, but this guitar sound, is this your favorite version of The Edge? This like early 1990s guitar sound? Yes. It is my favorite version of The Edge in that Despite having played in 1992, I think it still sounds as fresh in 1992 as it does now. Just with the combination yeah. of wah and delay and the drama and the patience, and you just hear it, and you're just waiting for something incredible to happen. And Zeropa could be my favorite U2 album. It's definitely, the title track is one of my favorite U2 songs. And I think that even if you don't like U2, you don't like what Bono became, you don't like the preachiness, how every song has to mean some kind of gospel, you don't like the fact that they're about to release a 40-song album of like, like remixing what Bono thinks are their best songs, you can still appreciate Zeropa for 
the sonic awesomeness that they were really capable of achieving back in 1992. Yeah, that, well, that came out in 92 or 93? Uh, 93, but... Um, oh, right. okay, okay. Yeah, Arctic right. Baby was the end of 91. They did the big tour, and then as they were in Europe, right. they were recording the uh, Zuropa tracks. So, on the note, because I, I agree with what you're saying, that, like, from a pure listening standpoint, if you're just, like, the most cynical U2 hater out there. Octoon Baby and Zuropa are the two albums, especially Zuropa, that kicks aside the gospel element and kicks aside the holier-than-thou element yes, of U2. Yes. And that we're actually going to save the world with fucking rock music. It can save the world if you try. No, it can't. Sorry. Hmm. It can't. It's an entertainment source. The um, Edge has reinvented the guitar playing punk rock on Mars. That was the tagline for uh, How to Dismantle an Atomic Bar uh, Bomb. Punk Rock on Mars. Was submitted our application for greatest band in the world once again. That was what they yeah. said in the uh, Rolling Stone interview in 1999 ahead of the release of All That You Can't Leave Behind. So if you kick all that side of U2, like, like kick it to the curb, Zuropa is it's sardonic. It's topical in a way that's not preachy. It's really funny at times. It's kind of weird and dirty and grimy at other times. Like I kind of was scared of this record as a kid. Like you got the <laughs> edge and that like little cap and he's like just sing speaking the words to numb. There's yeah, that like, was the first single. Like, that was like it's like it's almost like a vacuum cleaner that is playing the music during numb. It's so wild. The video for Lemon is super strange. Songs like Dirty Day and Daddy's Gonna Steal Your Crash Car. These are just like weird U2 songs. I'm curious. So they've been a band for 30 years since this album came out. And what we were talking about with Neil Young and this ability to kind of fail and transition. Why hasn't U2 been able to do this? since Zuropa. Like obviously we had pop, which a lot of people call failure. I'm I'll die on the hill that pop is a great record. I will really die on the no line on the horizon argument, but we have these two records in the early part of the two thousands, all that you can't leave behind and how to dismantle atomic bomb. that are both of them trying to reinterpret the U2 sound from the early eighties. We really get that in their two 2010s releases. And now we're just getting the band straight up re-recording their songs why have they not been able to go into the wilderness and come out of it again? Um, I don't know how many uh, units pop soul. I mean, not pop. Um, I don't know how many units they move with Zeropa. I don't know if it was as commercially successful as some of their other records. I think part of the problem is, is that one member of the band, i.e. Bono, believes that unless you two is making radio hits and those radio hits are helping out people around the world in third world countries and bringing money to their one charity that they're not doing anything worthwhile. Whereas pop, I mean, I guess, I don't know if anything was a hit, but relative to other U2, it's not very commercially viable. Like it had incredible sounds. I think that the songs are great and it was them pushing the edge, and that was, I think it got too close to the edge for Bono, saying, 
if we're not making songs like Pride and One and Where the Streets Have No Name, then we're not doing anything good. So they're not really a band that's that's conditioned for experimentation because it's not selling records. And if U2 doesn't sell records and they have unsuccessful albums, then you end up having to fire everyone at the record label because record labels are very uh, reliant on U2 selling albums. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm looking at their charts right now. And it says so much. So Zuropa comes out on July 24th, 1993. It hits number one. It right. stays there for two weeks and it spends 40 weeks on the chart. Four, four years later, March 22nd, 97, Pop is released. It spends one week at number one and then 28 weeks on the charts. Since then, the only albums that came out after Zuropa and Pop to be positioned higher are or to spend more time on the charts i should say are all that you can't leave behind and how does man on atomic bomb all that you can't leave behind hit number three spent 95 weeks on the charts though it had a long lasting life because of the the singles that came out on the record how does man on atomic bomb had vertigo it was all over apple but then U2 18 singles and the best of 1980 to 1990, which what, what are those two records? Those are compilation greatest hits albums. I right. think they got the message there that people wanted the greatest hits of, 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 of U2, but songs of experience and innocence, these spent nine and eight weeks on the charts, the best of the nineties, the B sides, these spent less time on the charts. It's just, it's clear that for them, they have to release a big record, which I think to your point, it's hard for them to justify the experimentation. Whereas Neil right. doesn't have the expectations of hitting and staying on number one and re- redefining the charts at that point. Yeah, that's a, a very good way to put it in the sense that they can't justify the experimentation because it may not necessarily make a song that they can play at the live show. Like, which is everything. Right. I mean, that being said, I think they were actually, they were playing Zuropa on a recent tour. It wasn't the most recent Joshua Tree tour. I mean, they were playing that song. It was 360. You 2 360? Okay, okay. Back in, back in 09 and 2010. Right. Which was definitely, the, obviously, pre-COVID. Okay, 2000. Okay, okay. Yeah, that was the Claw Tour. There's a really good video from... I think it's Australia. But I could be wrong about that. Most good YouTube um, concerts are from Australia. Yeah, they love playing <laughs> there. But it's a 360 show that's filmed. Maybe, you know, I'm going to completely go backtrack on this. It's from Minnesota. It's it's from Minneapolis. It's from the TCF Bank Center, wherever the Vikings played outdoors for two seasons. And ah. Brett Favre's career ended on the frozen turf. But they play a show there and... <clears throat> you get like four different fan footage of it. And it's really, really well done. It's put up on YouTube, the whole show. And they play Zeropa, I believe in the encore. And I remember like watching it and being like, holy shit, they can still play this song. I don't think today's YouTube can. Bono definitely can't hit those high notes, but um, which is, it just makes it such a shame because uh, that song just fucking rules and it rules live. And they could play it like 10 years ago. Mm. Um so before we jump into our segment on shoegaze, we had more artists that we wanted to talk to talk about that um, transition and effects were like what defines 
the lasting legacy of this band because they had radio hits and then they just completely abandoned that and decided to go off in their own direction entirely, which I think we would agree was more important for them and for music at large. Um, and that is the band Talk Talk. We've talked a lot on this podcast about Spirit of Eden, their 1988 record, I want to say, which I think we talked about <clears throat> for the first time on this show, all the way back in episode six, where we talked about the Fukuoka twist. And Dave said they use silence as an instrument, and that concept just completely floored me. And I went and listened to the record and was just like, holy shit. And it changed my life in a lot of ways. But we want to talk about the record before it, the record that precedes it. Talk Talk's The Color of Spring. Um, Dave, where does that record fit into this larger discussion of transition and the use of effects in transition? Color of Spring is a classic bridge album, which is to say it was the one before Spirit of Eden. It was the one which kind of... Like people forget that Talk Talk at one point they opened up for Duran Duran. They were a new wave band that had hits. Like they had hits like It's My Life. They had um Talk Talk the Song, Talk Talk, which is I think one of their really earliest singles. And they were uh serious new wavers with the radio. And then with the color of spring, what makes the transitional album is that most of these songs was fit on the radio. I think the single from this one was the song Life's What You Make It. But you begin to hear the instrumentation that would crop up on Spirit of Eden, which is to say is you get lots of upright bass, lots of piano, um, there's acoustic instruments. Parts of it even kind of oddly sound like Vampire Weekend, mm. which is to mm. say um, you're even saying um, you told me the song Happiness is Easy. Sounds like it could have been off Contra from Vampire Weekend, which I would agree. It reminds me of like Taxi Cab or Run, like the, the use of silence and melody in Contra. Yeah. And you could definitely hear them kind of straining up against what they become and what they would transition to. So it's really kind of doomed as to known as the album that came before Spirit of Eden. But there's more than that. It's actually, it's a very good record in its own right. Yeah, the bridge element of it, you hear a band like you hear a band deliberately transitioning from being a pop radio hit band to being something different than that and and really shunning any sort of approach at fame, which had to be so difficult in the mid nineteen eighties, where once you like got an MTV and you got that exposure and you started playing big concerts. <clears throat> Your life changes immediately. And then to completely walk away from that and really embrace experimentation. It's one of the things I love about this band. It's one of the things I love about their story. Um, but you hear in this album, all of these songs are still really well-crafted. But while they're really well-crafted songs that could play on a radio, they're stretched out a little bit longer than what you would anticipate from a three, three and a half minute long song that's played on the radio into something that's going to move into where it was in Spirit of Eden, where time, patience, silence, as you noted, is really utilized as an instrument as an album evolves and as, as a song evolves. You know, there's like these really slow builds on Spirit of Eden and here there's slow builds that lead to a big chorus 
And that chorus and that hook are still really important here. But they move at a pace that just previews where a band is going. I, I don't necessarily think like we were talking in when we were talking about Neil Young and when we were talking about U2, those albums that we were discussing and kind of the different pathways those bands took, there was failure as a key part of it. I don't hear a lot of failure on this record. It's it's one of those rare records that is trying something vastly different from what the band did before. And it's just really successful. And it kind of had to be a reinforcement that this was the right direction to take the, the this music. Yeah. And they took it to a whole new different extreme, obviously, with Spirit of Eden. And then Spirit of Eden took it even further with Laughing Stock, which I know we haven't talked about as much, but you talk about silence. The stretches that out when nothing happens. <laughs> it's and then Mark Hollis's solo record, even less happens. It's interesting for me to think about this music coming out at this point in time in conjunction with what Fish was writing in the mid-1980s and late-1980s, where so many of their songs were busy and filled with different diversions and different <clears throat> compositional elements and different musical theory elements. And within a decade, Fish would be taking on the lessons of Mark Hollis. And you think about the 1998 New Year's run that we were discussing. Silence is a huge part of that run. Mm. Um, the Simple, the Harry Hood, the 2001, these are jams that really like are born out of silence where melody comes in, it's kind of plucked out of thin air, and then it builds from there into the sonic wall of sound. And then they return to silence. You think about that second set from 1230 that year. And you even hear that now, like you, you referenced the sand, but the no man in no man's land from 1230, 2022. Overall, that's a jam that really emphasizes like these like gray tones and these like quiet kind of hushed melodies that just direct the band. Yeah. That doesn't have the lifespan of the jam. The no man's relative to other jams. It's very clean. It's very melodic. I mean, it's basically Trey doesn't nearly use the level of dissonance that he will later on in that set in that No Man's, which is why it's very pleasant and excellent. It's like twenty-one minutes of uh, twenty-one minutes of very clean melodic Trey, and you get that throughout the Color of Spring, where this is not a very effects-heavy record but you're going to hear, you hear the direction that the effects are going to be pushing the band in as they move towards more space. You just walk with me 
right. I hope that the heavy, heavy guitar presence of Old Black into Talk Talk's Life's What You Make It just showed you that kind of like the difference of utilizing effects and, and, and of transitioning as an artist. We are going to transition here into our last segment of the evening, of the episode, of the day, wherever you're listening to this, of the month, potentially. And we're going to talk about a style of music that we've talked about before. Some of you have given a shit before. There's a couple comments out there on iTunes that say, Beyond the Pond just means, let's talk about shoegaze. Which, you're not wrong. But, you know. What of it? Like, what of it? We're going to talk about some shoegaze here. There's a couple new artists that we wanted to address that we've been listening to these last couple of weeks. Um, that, you know, it's it's always fascinating me. I was thinking about it when I was listening to The Wave of Hope today. <clears throat> How has Trey never just like dove in and played like a slow dive song or My Bloody Valentine, aside from that one sound check appearance or some like small band camp shoegaze artists that nobody's heard of. Like, how have we just not got one of those in Fish's catalog? Because you hear the 2022 New Year's run, Elements of Fall 2021, 1997, uh, 2003, multitude of eras of Fish. And you just think to yourself, my God, this man just loves standing over a just pile of effects pedals, gazing down at his whatever shoes he's decided to wear that evening because he apparently has 250 pairs and just awashing the audience in sound. The man loves it. So he has to listen to shoegaze. And we just wonder why is he not giving us more shoegaze, at least on the nose? Well, he gives us plenty of shoegaze in terms of the effects that could use. The Wall of Sound. I mean, briefly, for those not entirely familiar with the genre, when you think of shoegaze, think of the late 80s, often in uh, the United Kingdom, late 80s indie sound associated with the 4AD label. Loud washes of guitar, undulating guitar, where the vocals are often dialed back, almost where you have to strain to hear them. And the better bands of that era being... um, the most experimental, kind of the granddaddies of the genre, of course, being My Bloody Valentine with their peak album called Loveless. Also, the band Ride from um, that era, British band. Slow Dive, who we talked about. Also, early records from The Verve. By the time they put out Urban Hymns with Bittersweet Symphony, they had kind of moved away from that sound. But the best shoegaze bands are the ones who kind of learned how to actually write excellent songs within... Um, that soundscape, as opposed to lots of other shoegaze artists who just make a lot of noise. It's really, it's a balance. And um, there's been plenty of times in Fish's history where you get the huge wash of sound on stage. One that me and Brian always go back to is the Everything's Right from December 30th of 2018. Quite possibly my feeling of the best example of a very melodic Fish, fish shoegaze jam. So it's clear to me that Trey listens to this stuff. I mean, I would 
love to hear him wax poetic about my bloody Valentine someday. Maybe he will. I don't know. One can hope. But uh, what we're Someone's talking about. Someone's got to ask him. Yeah. Someone's got to say just nobody's straight a, up. Nobody, like, nobody asks him about shoegaze. I know, right? Someone's got to do it. <laughs> There's like point. a shoegaze collection that he has of just like CDs that he's waiting for someone to ask you about that he's going to enthusiastically be like, oh my God, I love this. And he's just going to like pull out just like CD after CD and you're like, oh, I knew it. I knew it. Um, so yeah, we wanted to talk about three artists that are experimenting in this larger style. I think one thing that you noted a couple minutes ago, the best shoegaze bands are the ones that they hide a really good song within all those washes of sound. And I think that the three artists we're talking about here all write really strong songs. And that, that was one thing that appealed to me immediately. Most notably, the first band that you sent me for Tracy Hyde, um, their songs are so catchy. They're such earworms within just like layers and layers of guitars. Tell us a little bit about Four Tracy Hyde. So Four Tracy Hyde, they are a Japanese shoegaze band. There's actually a pretty strong scene in Japan uh, for some shoegaze bands. This is their fifth album. It's called Hotel Insomnia. They put out five albums in 10 years. This one immediately you put it on. It kind of has what I call the classic British shoegaze sound. And not for nothing, that it was actually mixed by Mark Gardner from Ride. I think it was one of their big career goals was just to work with somebody from Ride because out of the records we're going to discuss, this one sounds the most like it could have come out in 1990, 1991. It sounds a lot like Ride. And by that token, they're excellent songs. They're very well balanced. They get the balance between the vocals and the guitars correct. And what's kind of unfortunate is that much like their countrymen, uh, the band Kikagaya Moyo, this band has announced that they're breaking up in March after their final show. I think they basically said we have some issues right now with where we are in the country, issues with personnel. We put out five records in 10 years. That's a good run. This is our best record, so we're just going to shoot our shot and go out on top. And I appreciate that, but it's also too bad. This is the band that I would love to see live because they obviously know what they're doing on stage. Yeah, I appreciate it. It's also it's a troubling sign for the music industry because you think about, yeah. like, you reference Kiki Gaiko Moyo. Like, I saw them in September, and it was one of the most electric concerts I've ever been to in my entire life. And you thought to yourself, like, surely this can't keep growing but that transition and that leap is is so challenging for artists and this album you know i listened to this and it just sounded like racing through the streets in either korea or japan where there's just neon lights everywhere people are driving quickly there's street vendors there's so much happening so many people feels like Blade Runner in a sense, but in a really pretty way. You talk about that British sound, like it has that mix of urban, very fast-paced, very aggressive uh, sound that I heard out of a lot of artists I listened to in Korea as well as in Japan, but that shimmering beauty that you get out of British shoegaze. Just, it's a really stunning record. And like from a connection back to, you know, the fish that we were talking about, the light 
in the Kill Devil Falls from New Year's Eve 2022. Mm. I felt like there was some connection here. It was just like really pretty, beautiful, pretty, that watery guitar tone that Trey kept returning to. You hear that a lot here, that, that, that sort of style. Yeah, we didn't talk much about this year's, this year's New Year's show musically because outside of the first set tweezer, which is uh, I thought was very good, nice C major jam. Um, yeah, definitely the ones that you just discussed, being the Kill Devil Falls and the Light, it kind of those are probably the two best jams in that second set. I mean, clearly, very very light second set. Yeah, clearly the gag, which was fantastic, I thought, and brilliant, overshadowed everything. I thought that the gag was clearly in the band's head in the first and second set, which kind of had a, like, all right, let's get this over with and get to the fucking gag, feel to a little <laughs> bit of it. <laughs> There's a lot that they had to hit right in that, in the first, like, 40 minutes of the third set. They basically, like, composed a play. <laughs> like, everything had to hit right. <laughs> There's a part in the second set on the webcast, you can clearly see Paige looking at his watch. Yeah, <laughs> like, are we going to make this? <laughs> right. <laughs> it's like, all right. um, anyway the next band you sent me Velveteen put out a record called Empty Crush and um, you talk about how just in the notes here just to kick this off how indebted they sound to my bloody valentine I hear that entirely and, and listening to this record whereas for Tracy Hyde it's that shimmering kind of slow dive ride approach to shoegaze this is that like i'm gonna pour a bucket of water over your head and then another one and another one and oh, yeah. by the way that's not water i'm i'm pouring reverb and distortion over your head and you're just like drenched in it that is what this album is like this is as classic of shoegaze as i can imagine yeah this is very my bloody valentine indebted you get the classic kevin shields glide guitar where it just feels like undulations over your head, like someone threw a huge blanket of feedback over your head and it's making your head vibrate back and forth. But the songwriting's solid. The songwriting is very good. Um, I mean, look, the band's called The Velveteen. The album art is this like faded purple thing. They're British. They know they're not trying to reinvent the wheel here. I mean, they're definitely even... The album artwork looks like it could have been like a 1989-91, like 4AD British type thing. So they're basically going for the classic My Bloody Valentine sound. But the songs hold up, actually. Like the songwriting and the lyrics and the vocals, they come through loud and clear. And this is a, this is a good record. I mean, if you can get around the Loveless Junior feel to it, it, it gets the job done. You can just put your headphones on, hop in the couch, and zone the fuck out. Sometimes that's exactly what I want. Yeah, I mean, I find like a larger thought I have with shoegaze is that it's <clears throat> it's purposeful music. I'm like I'm looking for a specific feeling, whereas what we were talking about in the last segment and what we talk about pretty consistently with fish is I'm looking for you to surprise me and the unknown. And it feels like a, an album like Empty Crush. One of the things I like about it is I know exactly what I'm getting out of it. And I don't really expect nor necessarily want, at least at this point, this band to evolve beyond this because this is the sound that they're going towards. They do it really well, just kind of refine and work within it. I often wonder though, like My Bloody Valentine has released three records, correct? Uh, 
Yeah, not counting EPs, three albums. Being right, they I, have yeah, say anything, Loveless and MBV, right. It's a really wild career choice because there's you know that twenty year period in time where we didn't hear any sort of evolution within my bloody Valentine's sound, and it feels like correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of shoegaze artists you're kind of in and out because this is the sound you're going after. You either nail it or you don't. And then like, where do you go from there? Like slow dive went through a long period where they didn't play any music together. In the right. Same sort of vein. No, it's true. I mean, a lot of shoegaze bands don't have huge lifespans. I don't know if that's a product of just, Hmm. That's another issue for one other episode. And then some bands started shoegaze and they evolved that, like the Verve. The first Verve album, Storm in Heaven, is a pure shoegaze record. And then the next one, Northern Soul, a little less so. And then by the time of um, Urban Hymns, The Drugs Don't Work, it was much more of like a Brit poppy oasis. You wouldn't even known that they were a shoegaze record if you heard that first. Yeah, some of the songs on there. Band. Like the Rolling People, come on! Like did they have like some of like the shoegaze elements of that album? That was much more of a Brit poppy, almost like what became like Travis or Coldplay, like the post Brit pop ballad sound to it. Yeah, in a way, which is kind of where British pop music went to that, like British rock pop music went to that point in time. Exactly. So the last of these three bands, the only one that is American, this is a band from Philadelphia. They are called, this is the band's name, They Are Gutting a Body of Water, or Tagabo is the acronym. The album is called Lucky Styles, but for some reason on Bandcamp and Apple Music, it just shows up as S, but they claim it's called, it's called Lucky Styles, and that <laughs> kind of gives you an idea of what they're about. Is they're, they're kind of more so than these other two bands. They're very much pranksters. Um mm. They sometimes incorporate weird noises like a whiny children's choir on some of these songs. Like, it's definitely, it's a shoegaze record. And I like it because I think it's the least annoying of the new wave of American shoegazers. Like, a lot of recent American shoegaze bands, I'm not going to name names, but instead of being shoegaze, it's just kind of like indie pop but really shitty gear. Like, some of the records are almost too lo-fi for me to enjoy. Whereas this one, like, on this album, the second song is called the Kmart Amen Break. So mm. they have a song called Coke Freestyle, a song called 23 Till Infinity. So these are um, kind of cute, funny song titles with goofy references to other songs. Whoever runs their Twitter account has a really funny sense of humor. And the album is 10 songs, only 24 minutes long. So it's kind of over before you have time to get too sick of it. I had that feeling with it. Like when it ended, I was like, I, I went back and re-listened to it all over again. Cause it just like yeah. it ends quicker than you expect. Um, you, you said something in there about just like the challenges you have right now with American shoegaze artists. And from your point, it's, it's the artist. It's not you. Yeah. Bold comparison here. I think we're in a really good period right now with modern American jam bands mm. in a way that we were not as recent as five, 
to as far back as 15 years ago. Okay. I kind of wonder if part of it is you, you said a lot of these bands sound like indie pop bands that just have like really shitty gear. They're trying to, you know, play with. Yeah. I kind of feel like the comparison from a jam band standpoint is we had a period where jam band artists, new jam band artists were both not writing very good songs. And at the same time, were trying to attempt Fish's compositional challenges and just were not skilled enough to do so. And so you had these like dueling aspects where like American jam bands were just not, like you didn't have what you had in the 90s where like Fish comes along, Mo comes along, they blow out these huge jams, but they also write some really good songs and they also do this really weird compositional stuff. Right. And Widespread Panic comes along. Widespread Panic jams, but you could also just listen to a Widespread Panic album because those are just really good songs. Uh, and you have like an Umphreys McGee that is like incredibly skilled and very, very chop heavy. Um, a band like the Disco Biscuits that jams in a really interesting way. And then you get this like middle period where like there's just not a lot of new ideas and new sounds happening at that point in time. And now we're in like a really great period for it again. And I say that because, and I bring that up, like, do you see there being a pathway in shoegaze for like kind of an American Renaissance of artists? Or do you think it's like an economic issue now where people can't afford the gear that they necessarily need? Is it an ambition issue? What what do you see it? Well, I think a lot of it is there's actually sort of like some interesting vintage pedals have actually come down in price, which is why you kind of have seen a bunch of new American shoegazers who kind of wrongly think that so long as I have these pedals and the Fender Jazzmaster, I can do whatever the fuck I want, which you still have to write the songs, you still have to have the balance, and you still kind of have to be able to take what was good about the progenitors. And I still see that more in the UK and in Asia. Like another band, which we didn't mention, was very good uh, from South Korea, this band called Seisumi, excellent mm. shoegaze band, who put out a very, very good record back in 2022, the name of which currently escapes me. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's some people that would even consider um, what well, we talked about, MJ Lenderman, like his band... Wednesday. Wednesday, some people consider to be like an American shoegaze band. I think of them as more as like indie slowcore. It's kind of however you want to like categorize it. But with regard to the jam bands, yeah, I think we are in a pretty decent period right now. I mean, obviously Goose, um, I think Eggy kind of coming up. You're hearing some very good sounds from them as well. I think we get, we hear King Gizzard as a jam band, a pro oh, yeah. jam band right now in a lot of cases. No, King Gizzard, they're a jam band now. I've you crossed watched, over. You crossed over. They've, they've crossed over. I've watched enough King Gizzard YouTube in the past few weeks to say, no, these guys are fucking jam band. <laughs> they get it.
right. Drying myself off after being drenched in reverb in the best way possible. Um, thank you, everyone, for listening to episode 116 of the Beyond the Pond podcast. This was a ton of fun. As we said in our last episode, as we said at the top of this episode, we're kind of trying some new stuff out here. I enjoyed myself. Did you enjoy yourself, David? <laughs> yes, I enjoyed myself. I, I have, uh, I got myself a Hanukkah present, some brand new noise canceling cans to do this. And I'm trying to get used to the sound of uh, my voice via noise cancellation. Aside from that, yeah, I very much enjoy this. I'm just still, still getting back to the Beyond the Pond rhythms, also realizing how much I missed it. So, Same. Same. Very much so. And I hope you out there in BTP land enjoyed yourself. Um, we are going to be back at some point in February. Um, we'll say this for the next couple of episodes. We're not going to do the every two weeks episode, every week type of thing that we did in BTP 1.0. We're kind of going to allow our own musical journeys and exploration to kind of guide with this show goes and so as we're feeling inspired we'll come back but we really thank you for listening um we're also going to dig up the old beyond the pond email address i gotta figure out how to re-log into it because we'd love to get a mailbag thing here going and have more of a conversation with you listeners especially i am no longer on social media so i don't even see or hear what any of you think about these episodes or think about music. And I'd love to just get your questions and thoughts and insights and whatnot. So we'll, we'll get that info out to you guys in the meantime, let us know what you think about this. Shoot us a Twitter. Dave will read it. He'll tell me if it's good. He won't yes. tell me if it's bad. We've gotten some great DMS over the last couple of weeks, which we really, really appreciate. Thank you all for the support as we've come back here to BTP 2.0. Um, what else? What am I forgetting? Um, that sounds good to me. I mean, we love the DMs. We very much love it when the BTP fan creep up in our DMs. Don't stop. We have, take no issue with that whatsoever. Um, if you like guys Brian's, have episode requests or jam yeah. requests or artists that you want us to dive into, we're pretty open-minded right now. So if you have anything you want to hear us talk about, even beyond a mailbag, just shoot us a message and be like, hey, have you guys ever listened to this jam? This is something I hear about it. Would you guys listen? And we'll check it out, and maybe we'll do an episode on it. We'll see. Seriously, we very much are into the choose-your-own-BTP adventure. So, yeah, but like Brian said, if you've gotten this far, always thank you very much for listening. This is always enjoyable to do gives me a fantastic excuse to talk music with one of my close friends on a weekday night who doesn't want to do that so thank you very much for coming with us come back at some point in february i would say likely before fish hits up riviera maya because that's at the end of the month we'll hold hands we'll sing kumbaya we'll talk about effects we'll talk about shoegaze we'll talk about opening up black holes on stage like trey anastasia is doing Tear them apart. Sydney's X1. And we'll go beyond the pond.
Osiris. <laughs> 